0: How would a perfect money system, what would that look like? Well, I don't know if there's any
1: such thing as perfection in this fallen well, world.
0: Well, <laughs> a, a good one, one that makes sense sure. that, you know, without inflation, where that doesn't deteriorate. Well, I would, I would argue that a perfect system,
1: you know, in a coming day, perhaps of a more enlightened humanity, we would have something like this. On the one hand, we would have full reserve banking. As far as the deposit function is concerned, can you define that again? Well, what we said uh, regarding the Bank of Amsterdam, in other words, if you, banks would not be allowed to uh, to create new money. None. They
0: have to. No. The no, only it, thing they can loan is what they, they have.
1: Well, but the thing is, you can also. I mean, you can, like, for example, when you put money in a CD in a bank, that's technically not a sa- That's not a demand account. Because that's why there's a term associated with a CD. And if you withdraw the money before the term expires, there's a penalty. Mm. Because that contract means, yes, I'm loaning the money to the bank. They're paying me interest over uh, over an agreed upon period of time. And they do have the right then to turn around and loan that money out to someone else and make interest on it in turn. But I have to leave it there. But I have to leave it there. So there's no double claim on the money. Mm. That's the point. So the fact that there's no double claim means that that $20,000 in my CD or whatever it is, uh, is not going to magically become forty thousand or something because it's actually being used for two purposes, and the bank is assuming and hoping against hope that I don't come by and claim it. okay? Mm-hmm. But a demand account is different. So it would require a legal system that would clearly distinguish between the deposit function and uh, you, and and the associated demand you know requirement, uh, you know a demand account and basically a loan account. I mean, it would still be legitimate to come to a bank and say, okay, let's, see. I've got this money. I don't need it for the next two years. You can have it. As long as you pay me some money, I won't touch it. I'll sign a right. contract to that effect, and you, in turn, can loan it out. That's perfectly legitimate.
0: Yeah. What's
1: not legitimate is if I say, I'm coming here with $100,000. I'm going to open a checking account or a demand savings account. right? Yeah. And, and the, my assumption is that I can come and, and, and access any, any portion of that at any time. And the bank agrees to do that, but we both sort of know that they aren't really going to do that. right? So there's that moral ambiguity. That needs to be gotten rid of, first thing. Second thing, um,
0: Precious metals? there would
1: be a, well, we had, you know, in the United States, we, we never had a gold standard. We had a bimetallic standard, which is different. Um, that means that, and this was established by the US Constitution. And I think it's a, it's a good idea. Although, I mean, there were, there was some, it's not a perfect system because the value of gold and silver with respect to one another always fluctuates a little bit. So there are people, you know, on the libertarian side who argue that only a gold standard would really avail us. Yeah, yeah. But, I would, so, you know, one way or the other, I would say you would want to have a, you want to have what's called, um, well, fiduciary money would probably work. There are three types of money. Okay. So um, commodity money is when you only recognize, you only have gold and silver yeah. or grain or copper or something out there. And that's your money right there. Okay? okay. Now, obviously fiat money is when none of that exists and it's only paper or some kind of other evanescent thing, mm-hmm. like a computer entry that, that stands for money in the middle. Is what's called fiduciary money, and that's what we had in general. Now, fiduciary money means money that is either commodity money or stands in representation thereof. So, if I'm a bank and you come and deposit a certain amount of gold and silver, and I issue, you know, a bill, a note, a claim note on that, and then you go out and use that as money with the understanding that it can be fully redeemed at any time, that's a fiduciary type agreement, and that I think is is valid as well.
0: Yeah, I Um, thought. I mean, you know. By that definition, is I thought that was my impression that that's what the precious metal standard was,
1: but well, I mean, again, there are two types of precious metal standards, So that, because they're they're more or less three types of money. Okay? okay. So now one other thing, a question people often ask, they have this derogatory term "gold bug," after the famous uh, Edgar Allan Poe short story, uh, and a gold bug is someone who dogmatically insists on the need for a gold standard. Yeah. And um, so. Gold bugs are portrayed by mainstream ath- uh, economists as being one really of these fanatics. Okay, so the question, it, and it's a valid question, and you kind of alluded to it earlier when you said, well, now hasn't you know, the, the current system been responsible for all this prosperity and, and so forth and so on? Well, um, why is gold such a good thing as far as money is concerned? Well, because of the characteristics of gold, and here are a few of them. Number one, it's portable. It can be carried from place to place, and that might seem silly, but It might seem obvious, but some cultures, like the Yap Islanders of the Pacific Ocean, had gigantic stones (laughs) as money. And that's interesting. They're very, but you can't carry them around. They're not very convenient.
0: Well, they'd be hard to exchange, too, right? Right. So
1: gold is very portable. It's also very divisible. So you can divide it into smaller units. That's a useful characteristic. Um, It lasts
0: forever. Yeah, it's durable, huh? It's
1: durable. So durability is another characteristic. Paper certainly is not. Okay. Um, It's scarce. And uh, we'll actually, let's come back to scarce a minute. It's, it's useful, inherently useful, in the sense that it's used in many other things besides money, right. which confers a certain amount of, of, of value independent of mm-hmm. its use for money, because gold is used in machinery and jewelry and all kinds of other things. So it's right. inherently useful. And then finally, it's scarce. And this is the most crucial. Okay, why is scarcity so important? Uh, because that means that governments cannot manipulate the supply. Governments and banks are limited by something that is just abundant enough that people can use it for money. I mean, something like platinum, which is much rarer than gold, is, is probably not easily enough at, obtained to right. be practical as money, right? And something like uh, nickel or copper, I mean, we use it sometimes in small denominational coins, but it's too common and abundant yeah. to, be, you know, to, to be a standard. Uh, that, we kind of learned this over thousands of years of, of trial and error. So gold is the perfect, Thing for money, and 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 the most important of those five attributes is the scarcity, yeah. Because it means that no one can monkey with the supply, and this is the reason that prior to the institution of the modern fiat money system at the beginning of the twentieth century, okay, uh, it was possible to you know to the extent that we have data at all, you could look at prices back through history and see that prices really didn't change generally. Yeah. There would be occasional blips here and there, if there's an earthquake or a flood or a crop failure or something, that's not inflation. That's different. And, so, and a very wise economist pointed out that if you looked at the cost in ancient Rome in gold, or silver if you prefer, for uh, you know, a, a nice toga, a pair of sandals, a sash, the equivalent of a modern day you know, business suit, it was about the same in gold, reckoned in gold, as the cost of a, of a three-piece suit yeah. circa 1900. No kidding. Right. So the the similar, not identical articles, of course, but more or less commensurable articles
0: um, in different cultures.
1: Over 2,000 years, the pricing really didn't change very much.
0: You know, it's interesting because you mentioned being a teenager. I was not, I was nowhere near as You were never a teenager? No, I was not awake. I was not thinking about anything remotely like this. But over, it's just recently that I realized that inflation is not a normal thing or the uh, rising in prices is not a normal thing. It doesn't have to be. And I think that outlook is representative of how a lot of people look at, uh, at money and things like that. It's like prices just rise, you know, and when, you know, grandparents will tell you, you know, 60 years ago, we bought that house for 30,000 and it's just accepted. Well, obviously that house today is like, you know, 170 and that's just the way things are going to be. And then in another 50 years, it'll be more than that. And that's, you know, it's accepted as that. But it's like the, the truth is it doesn't. It doesn't. Prices don't have to, to always be surging, and this is a result of inflation.
1: Well, I mean, I mean in, the first, in the first 100 plus years of the American Republic, what you had, on the one hand, was a, a continual surge in prosperity and in the standard of living, coupled with more or less steady prices.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Particularly
1: commodity prices like bread and things like that. Yeah. There was no inflation.